Hey babe. Well, hey there. Hey, I heard something really cool. You did? What's I that? I heard that you went to Turkey. Me? Yes. You heard about that? Mm-hmm. Where in the world did you hear about that? Only about every 10 minutes you mention it <laughs> to whoever you're around. <laughs> it was a pretty life-changing trip. So I probably do mention it every now and then five or six times a day. Mm-hmm. But when I do mention it, I talk about how it's a faith building trip and not a faith defining trip. Mm-hmm. Meaning a lot of the things that Mark and our whole expedition, I like to call this an expedition because it sounds cool. Wait, did you call yourself the Fairchild Five? The Fairchild Five, mm-hmm. yes. We had Mark, we had Scott, Scooter, which is me. <laughs> we had Josh, we had Dick, and we had Janelle. Mm-hmm. So we were the Fairchild Five and we made it through all of this. Yeah. And I call it faith building instead of faith defining because some of the things we're going through, there's not a hundred percent evidence. There's a lot of evidence that tells us these things happen in Paul's life and all that, that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, but there's also, it's not faith defining because if we find out some of this didn't happen, it's not going to change my faith. Right. So it's like building it up and making me think of new things and new ways to look at the scriptures, mm-hmm. but yeah, so cool. So the way this started is a few uh, months ago, we interviewed a guy named Mark Fairchild. He's a professor in Indiana, and they call him Indiana Mark when he goes to Turkey. And I know why now. Yes, because he does (laughs) all the crazy things. And when we interviewed him, he said he doesn't usually take people with him because they can't keep up. Um, But I had mentioned, well, Scott could keep up because, you know, he goes to the gym every day. And he reached out several months later and said, hey, you still want to go to Turkey? And Scott, I said, you got to go, babe. You got to hop in on this trip. So that is how he ended up going and sharing this experience with the Fairchild Five. Um, and so we thought it would be great to have a recap of that and just kind of listen to the two of them bounce off each other and see, um, you know, just a recap of the trip of all the fun things that they did and all the places they hiked and all the things they saw and all the danger they were in. Um, <laughs> so we hope you guys enjoy this recap too with Dr. Mark Fairchild. I hear you're quite the man to keep up with. <laughs> well, hey, I'm telling you what, Scott impressed me. <laughs> did he? I told you on our first interview, I said he could keep up with you. <laughs> Yeah, he did very well. It was tough, but that that part of the beauty of it was that it was tough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. when we went to the more domesticated, touristy place, we were all like, let's go somewhere where it's harder. Yeah. Like they had steps for us and elevators and we're like, what is this? Yeah. You get that adrenaline rush that says, hey, I need, I need the excitement. Yeah, yeah. And you feel like you're somewhere that other people aren't going, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So right. That, that was pretty cool. So what have you done all summer? Where have you been? (laughs) Well, um, I started out, of course, as Scott knows, in uh, Israel and Egypt with a group. From there, I came back, went to Eastern Turkey, joined Scott's group. Uh, Then from there, I came to Western Turkey. Uh, I had a presentation at a conference there. And immediately after that, I had a group that I led around. And then following after that, I had a pastor's group. That was in uh, Greece, actually Turkey, and then finished up in Greece, and then it came home. 
Oh, wow. Okay. Two full months uh, back to back to back to back. And I've never really done anything where I had no space in between. I usually have a little bit of time to do my research. Yeah. Not this time. Well, Scott said you had like, he said, I don't know where he carried all his stuff. He just had a little bag (laughs) and he just kept going. (laughs) So you must be a pro at it. (laughs) Well, I had my big bag. Scott must know that. Remember the big colorful one? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And and I was amazed that we were able to pack all of it into our backup car. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was like Tetris to get all that stuff in. Yeah. Um, My bag was way too big. I told Rebecca the next time I'm taking like two change of clothes and in a backpack. I mean, I didn't didn't need 90% of what I took. Yeah. I well, said, I was there for two months. I was there for longer oh, yeah, than you. For sure. I need a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. But for crazy. just the 10 or 12 days we did, I was basically just cycling through the same hiking gear. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I didn't really need. Yeah. You know, I was packing like I was going on a regular trip. No. But no trip is regular with Mark. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Which is awesome. Mark, yeah. it's been so cool to hear all his stories and just all of your insight and he tries to regurgitate the things that you know and so i'm so glad to have you like back on to talk about like why you do all of this and uh the research you're doing it's just so fascinating to me so so tell us like overall your research in general that you didn't get to do this summer but that you usually do well there's two two big projects that i'm working on the first one was the fulbright uh research scholarship that i had with regard to nicaea ancient nicaea um I was able to spend one day there, you know, because I had a group that actually was at Nicaea. They wanted to see Nicaea. So one of the groups that uh, followed after you, I took them to Nicaea. So I was able to be there and to take a, a few photographs at a new museum. They've got a new museum that they've opened up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I finished, almost finished, I can't say finished entirely, that book. And uh, I don't know if I should say this yet. But uh, I've got a publisher. Oh, okay. Um, InterVarsity Press Academic um, has gone through the first two stages of the publication project. Oh, yeah. I actually have three stages. The first stage is where I get a hold of an editor and make the proposal for the project, explain what I'm doing, give a lot of the data. And then the editor that I've been working with approved of it, liked it. She took it to a subcommittee. That subcommittee on Friday uh, liked it, a lot of good comments, and they passed it on to the final committee, which is going to meet on Friday. I anticipate that that will probably be a yes, but you, of course, are going to be editing this production. I'll let you know if it's final thumbs up or not. And of course, (laughs) you can wipe this out. this This is for the Nicaea project, right? This is for the book that I'm writing on Nicaea. And like I say, it's practically finished. I've got to add a little more uh, to it. And then I've got to add a lot of photographs as well. So it's going to be illustrated. And so that's the first project. For Nicaea, can you just explain Nicaea real quickly for people that maybe don't know what that is? Okay. Nicaea is where the first of the seven ecumenical councils took place. All seven of the ecumenical councils are in western part of Turkey. The first and last, the first and seventh, were at Nicaea. And these are recognized by churches, denominations across the world. Hmm. Roman Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, 
Protestant churches, this is kind of the foundation of faith. It is the first time where Christians got together, assembled together, actually at the bidding of Constantine. Constantine had just become a Christian, and there were some theological disputes that were going on at that time. And Constantine did not want Christianity to be fractured into the denominations that we see today. I think, actually, mm -hmm. Constantine would be you know, really disappointed to see the way that Christianity is fractured into you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, and there's this bickering sometimes. I, I think, and my hope has always been that we get over the small details, okay, and really concentrate on the core of the faith rather than to you know, argue about how do we baptize someone. Right. That's not to diminish the importance of baptism or some of the other issues that we discuss, but it's not the core of the faith. Mm -hmm. It's not what Christianity is all about. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, Constantine gathered together a little more than 300 people at Nicaea, and uh, they debated the issue. And that's, of course, from that came the Nicene Creed, which has become one of the first foundational creeds of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. um, the work that I've been doing there, along with Mustafa Shaheen, uh, he is the head of archaeology at uh, Uludal University, and he's got the director of uh, archaeology at the site. Um, we believe that the Basilica originated as a marturion, and that is a church that was built to commemorate and to remember a martyr. His name was Neophutos. Then, when Constantine gathered together this assemblage of bishops and leaders of Christian churches, they probably met in that church. There are 16 churches, ancient churches, Byzantine churches that have been discovered at Nicaea, but only one of them dates back to the time of Constantine. And that's this recently discovered submerged basilica. Wow. It was first found in uh, 2014. So it's it's not something, in, and of course, if it's underwater, people aren't going to see it, but it was revealed through aerial photography in 2014. And then the authorities asked Mustafa Shaheen if he would investigate, and he's been working on it since. Oh, wow. wow. So cool. Okay, That's so crazy. So they're wait. So they're diving down and seeing this underwater yeah. basilica, like yeah. And it's not far submerged. It's about two meters, about six feet, depending upon how close to the shore. It's not far from the shore, also maybe about thirty meters, uh, thirty yards roughly from the shore. So the closer part is is uh, not as far underwater, but the deeper part of the uh, yeah, basilica sure. is a little further. So they've got people trained in scuba. Uh, with cameras and with a suction tube, they're excavating, bringing up a lot of the artifacts that they're able to suck up out of the water yeah. uh, onto the shore so they can be examined. Ah, that's so cool. It's pretty amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I want to get into our turkey trip. And one of the first things that really hit me is that I didn't realize is three-fourths of the New Testament was in Turkey, like it happened in Turkey. And I don't I know. I would say closer to, closer to two-thirds. Two-thirds, yeah, that's what I meant. Two thirds. Okay. And I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I, I guess in my mind, I never thought of where Ephesus is and Tarsus is and all that. I never really imagined them being in Turkey. So that kind of that's the first thing that blew my mind is two thirds of the New Testament's in Turkey. So I don't think that's something we really think about um, or really learn about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
So we started in Antioch. Tell us about Antioch and how the church started there. That kind of blew my mind too when we got well, there. Well, the Acts of the Apostles tells us that the early Christian church was persecuted in Jerusalem. As a consequence of that persecution, Christians spread out from Jerusalem. They went into the area of Judea, uh, further afield into uh, Samaria. We read about that in Acts chapter 8, where Philip preached the gospel to the Samaritan people. But the persecution continued. And as a consequence, Christians spread throughout the Mediterranean world. We read in Acts chapter 9 that a Gentile, not a Jewish, but a Gentile Christian church began to grow up in Antioch, which is uh, far to the north of Jerusalem. And uh, it was a big city. The city was one of the five largest cities in all of the Mediterranean world. So not a small city. Even today, um, the city's 200,000 people. Of course, the earthquake that Scott and I saw. Oh, yeah. Um, it was... It was, oh man, it was rough. Yeah, it's diminished well, the population. Much of that population is now departed and it's gone elsewhere. Of course, there's tent villages out and around where people who want to stick around are still there. But it was, you know, back in Paul's days, getting back to what I'm talking about, it was a big city, a real big city. And so they sent Barnabas up there to do ministry. And Barnabas soon realized that the work at Antioch was much more than what he could do on his own. So he wanted good, capable help. Now, Paul, by that time, had been sent back to Tarsus, his hometown, which is not all that far uh, from Antioch. So Barnabas went over, found Paul, uh, and then brought him back to Antioch. And it stated in the Acts of the Apostles that they together, for a full year, uh, began to do ministry at Antioch. Then, Acts chapter 13, as we open up that chapter, it tells us that the Holy Spirit spoke in their presence, which I'd like to hear more about. <laughs> Did this happen? Yeah. But, you know, the initiative was not people, you know, it's not a church meeting where the elders get together and say, hey, I got a great idea. It's specifically stated twice that the Holy Spirit spoke in their presence saying, set aside for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I've called them. And so that was then the beginning of what we read about in the rest of the Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. And that is the, um, the three missionary journeys of Paul uh, and Barnabas and Silas as they go into, well, what is today Turkey, what was known back in those days as ancient Anatolia. So tell us, didn't they meet at Mount Starin? I think I'm saying that right. The mountain that we went to where the caves were, that's where the church met in Antioch? That's what tradition tells us. Unfortunately, yeah. the modern city of Antakya sits squarely on top of the ancient city, so we can't excavate anywhere we want. Actually, now with the earthquake and removal of the debris, there's probably, uh, I, don't, I don't know how the city's going to develop in the years to come, but it may be possible, conceivably, for us to find new archaeological sites and places to excavate in Antakya or ancient Antioch. But according to tradition, this is where the church began. And was it the church that was initially established at the time when Barnabas and Paul were there? Or was it a church that developed a little bit later on in time? We don't know for sure. But uh, the church, and I wish we could have gotten in. Unfortunately, because of the earthquake, uh, the church was slightly damaged 
from what I understand, not significantly so, but uh, it's it wasn't open. For that matter, nothing in Antioch was open at the time when we arrived. Yeah, and it, with everything that was going on, I can I can understand why they why they didn't have everything open. So yeah, I mean, we were lucky to find food there. Quite honestly, yeah, we found a little place on the corner and <laughs> ate there. So yeah, it was man, it was like it was really like a war zone. It really was. Oh, really? So prayers. I've never you. seen anything like that. I I hadn't either. I've never been in a place like that. So. Okay, now we go to the net. This was the hard, probably the hardest hike for us for sure. And that mm -hmm. was the Seleucid Fortress, which is about 200 BC, right? So yes. did it take us like maybe four hours to climb this thing? This it, it seemed like to me, we it seemed to me we made it faster. Okay. Um, it just know, felt I, like I, four hours. <laughs> I know in the past it's taken me four hours. Mm -hmm. But the route that we took this time, I think we must have gotten lucky because we found <laughs> a route. Did you feel that, lucky? <laughs> It's, it's almost like the waters parted and we were able to get up there. Now, you still had that very difficult, arduous climb because you're going almost straight up. Oh, yeah. Still difficult, but we didn't encounter the, the brush that I've typically had to claw my way through, getting scratched and whatever. But on the way up, it was terrific. I think we missed the route on the way back down, though. It you seemed made... harder on the way back down. Yeah. yeah. Because on the way down, somehow we got off track a little bit and we got a little more scratched up, but uh, wasn't still wasn't bad. That was so maybe it was three hours. I I can't remember how long yeah. it took us to get to the top. Ooh, but the, the coolest moment is when we rounded that corner and we came through the brush and you saw the elephant above the the elephant uh, carved into the top of the lintel. Uh, building. Yeah, the lintel. And I'm like, man, this is real. Like this is Seleucid. <laughs> This is Wait, like, why, I'm actually here. Why an elephant? Well, that was the symbol of the Seleucid Empire. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. The, see, the Seleucid Empire was a, an empire that developed after Alexander the Great's death. Yes. Responsible. Uh, after Alexander kicked the bucket, <laughs> uh, his massive empire that extended all the way from Greece and Macedonia to India was divided up by what are called the Diadokoi, that is the generals. Mm -hmm. And this particular territory was taken over by Seleucus. And he established then his own kingdom, which lasted for, oh, 300 years. Yeah, yeah. This and is that was their symbol, was the elephant. Okay, I didn't realize that. This is where we get the story of Hanukkah from eventually, right? That's when the Jewish people fought, yeah. Yeah, that's when the Seleucids went down into Israel mm -hmm. and tried to impose that's Hellenism right. upon the Jewish people. Yeah. And uh, of course, the Maccabean revolt that, that came about as a consequence of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, do we have any evidence how they made these? We are, like you say, it took three hours for us to hike up. How did they build these fortresses on these mountains? Do we have any evidence of how they did this? Well, um, I mean, there are theories. And um, what I was... Is it aliens? <laughs> I don't think too many people follow after that theory. Uh, okay. They had to have quarried the stone from the mountaintop. Mm, okay. okay. There's no way on earth they're going to be able to haul that amount of stone from down below up the route that we took impossible so they had to have quarried 
right there on the top. And then as they quarry down into the mountain, of course, you're you're opening up cavernous areas mm. where you can use it for storerooms, you can use it for homes, residences. It was probably used. There are some people who believe that that was the Seleucid treasury, mm. which in some regards makes sense. Because if you've got gold and valuable possessions, um, it's pretty hard for somebody to get up that mountain to steal it, to take it. Yeah. And if you look at it, the layout of the entire place, we weren't able to actually get to the upper city. You know, we pointed out to Scott and the others, the upper city, I don't think anybody had the energy or the will to, to do more climbing because it would be higher up. But it's kind of a, a Spartan, austere, you know, not a luxurious kind of a, a city. It's it's pretty much rudimentary and you can imagine probably for troops and whoever it is that's been stationed up there. Hmm. So my suggestion is, is I think they quarried uh, a lot of the stone for the walls, for the towers, for the residences uh, from the mountaintop itself. And uh, I mean, still, that's an amazing, amazing structure on top of a place that is scarcely accessible. Well, don't oh, we have yeah. some, this might be a way off subject, but our topic or whatever, but with Masada, we have them, you know, building up, you know, like in an incredible way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah. Herod built Masada, as yeah. you know, of course, and uh, he loaded it with food and provisions. He cut cisterns into the side of the the uh, the mesa. It's kind of like, I would call it a mesa, like what we have out west. Yeah. And then a wall out and around it. And of course, Herod built that structure because if if he ever felt that there was a threat against his life, he would retreat to Masada and be able to hold out until the Romans came and rescued him. Yeah. So yeah, they're, the, the ancient construction is just amazing. That's yeah. what they were able to do. Yeah. I'm sure. yeah, sometimes I, th I, you know, I have to confess, before I started traveling and really immersing myself into ancient archaeology and in uh, the architecture, I used to have this kind of naive uh, thought that these are people who are not capable of, of building anything more than like grass huts, mud, mud dwellings, and just rudimentary form of uh, existence. But mm -hmm. as I've traveled over there and I've, I've read and learned much more, uh, it's in, unbelievable uh, yeah. how the, uh, the architects and the engineers could build what they were able to build. Yeah. We, we just assume we're so much smarter now, yeah. but they still figured out the techniques With to do it. With the materials it. Yeah. that they had. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. right. So if we were to walk that, through some of these ancient cities, I think we would just be blown away. Yeah, just the artistry and that, it, and honestly, that it's still there. I mean, mm -hmm. some of these things are two or 3,000 years old and they're still there. Yeah. So yeah. it's just crazy. So one of the things that really changed my life is when we, just outside of Tarsus, we hit the Roman road to Galatia. And just describe to us how they built the Roman road and what travel was like back then. It was tough for us. It was rainy and nasty the day we went. So we, I think we probably walked two or three miles down the road and came back. So tell us how they built those and then what travel would be like for Paul when he was doing it. Well, first of all, they would have scouts that would go out and, and see what was the most negotiable route to make it. Uh, and then what they would do is use local materials and lots of times employ local populations. 
You know, so as, as we remember, we passed through a city, a small little unknown village uh, that uh, basically where we terminated and decided to turn back and come back. Um, but the local people are to benefit from this. So, of course, they contributed labor. It's more or less forced labor. But they would have engineers who would quarry the rock. Uh, they would actually have a subsurface layer of stone. Believe it or not, you know, they realized that what damages um, sidewalks and roads, even today, is the the water, you know, the freezing, the thawing, the water problems that are caused as a consequence. So they had subsurface uh, drainage. They also had gutters typically on the side. They had uh, curb stones to keep the stones packed in so that they wouldn't fall apart. And uh, they put it together. And, we also uh, found that they had buckies too, or that's something we made up made up on our <laughs> where we yeah, just never the restroom. I've never heard of buckies before, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was introduced to buckies. Yeah, you don't So I think I didn't you say like every ten miles there was a like an inn or somewhere for people to stay and typically with Roman roads in particular, they would have an inn or a uh, a place where. The Romans also had to communicate through these roads. And what would typically happen is they would have horses and they would ride to move the mail as quickly as possible. Uh, they would go from one station to the next station, change horses, and then move on. If nightfall comes, this would be a place where you could find hospitality, you can sleep, you can find some food. But uh, they would typically, every 10 to 15 miles, depending upon the terrain, you know, if you're climbing, uh, it may be, a little closer, um, but uh, yeah, typically they would have uh, hospitality, an inn or something of that sort along the way. Wow. And as a matter of fact, I pointed out, I don't know if you remember, but on our left-hand side, uh, some distance beyond the uh, the Roman mile marker that we had spotted, uh, there was a, uh, a dwelling that had been cut. Of course, there's nothing standing from the dwelling, but you could see the foundation of a dwelling on the left-hand side. And that very well may have been an inn. And it was just, it's so cool to walk those, when you're actually, like you can read it in the Bible and it's really cool. But when you're walking along paths that you knew Paul take, that Paul took, it just changes the way you read things. Like mm -hmm. the way I read the Bible now is totally changed because I've been on location where it happened. Because <laughs> in my mind, I can think, oh, well, that's right there. I was right there. So mm -hmm. I would tell anybody to take a trip like this. I'm I'm serious. You I'm, told me that I probably would not like what y'all You did. would like some of the climbing, probably. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I said you could do it. <laughs> well, I'm kind of a daydreamer. When I go on these trips, many times I'm by myself. Yeah. This is actually the first time I've taken a small group uh, to these places because most people aren't capable or willing yeah. to do what Scott was doing. Yeah. Well, but, did, they, uh, did they cramp your style a little bit? <laughs> no, not really. As I said, I was amazed at how well all of them uh, were able to negotiate and to make it. Mm -hmm. That's but typically, as I do these things, I'm just daydreaming. I'm, I'm just taking myself back 3,000 years. And, and it's particularly good when you're out of nature, you know, because you don't see modern buildings or anything of that sort. And I... I almost get the sense that I'm walking with Paul. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So these 
cliff dwellings are some things that you guys talk about often. And like Scott sent me a picture one day and it looked, there was like a mountain like this or a cliff like this. And then one kind of like this. And he said, I'm climbing this today. And I said, this, and I circled it. He goes, no, this. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm constantly just saying, let me know when you're down or out or whatever you're doing. Let me know you're alive. He said it had like ropes hanging with knots tied in it to hold. I was like, give it a real good tug to make sure, you know, it hadn't been there since Cleopatra. And so, you know, give it a good yank before you hold on to it. So tell us a little bit about those cliff dwellings and like what what evidence we have that Paul ministered there to those people. Scott may be thinking about the Lamas Valley. Yeah, uh, the like Satan's Valley, is that what it's called? No, well, that's a different one. Okay. Satan, the Lamas Valley was before Satan's Valley. Okay. This is the one where we walked a good distance. It, again, it was sprinkling out a little bit, but they had the sprinklers and the water pipes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. And remember the Roman bridge that we saw that goes oh, over the Oh, yes, yes, that river? was before that, yep. Okay, um, so that's a great site, and you can really see all the rock-cut dwellings. These are people who are trying to escape from pirates who had been raiding them, um, and they retreated up into the interior. It was a matter of basic survival. Uh, and then I think the one you're talking about is Satan's Valley is called Adam Kalar. Yeah. And uh, we had that's pretty steep going down. And they had this rope. I assure you, it wasn't from Cleopatra's time. <laughs> uh, but I've never, that's the first time I've seen that rope. It wasn't there last year. Oh, wow. Okay. It's, so it hasn't been there. And I think long. part of it is, I, I don't know, maybe some people have fallen down. <laughs> but it's, you know, if you fall down, you're going to get seriously hurt. Yeah. If not killed. And so, you know, they had the rope that somebody had uh, anchored uh, to the side of the rock. And so that would help you as you take your way down. That's crazy. Well, I know. And we came down to the uh, reliefs that are on the side of the cliffs. So tell us, why did these communities make these reliefs and what was the purpose of that? Well, it's twofold. Number one, um, they are to remember those who have died. So some of them are burial reliefs. But the second purpose also is to warn people who are coming from the coast into the interior. So you'll notice that almost all of those reliefs will have a soldier. And these are stereotypical. They are garbed in a, a tunic. Uh, they have a, a spear and a, a sword, what's called the gladius. That's where we get the word gladiator. And what they're basically saying is that you have pushed us out of the coastal regions because formerly these were people who lived in the coast. These were people who were involved in fishing, people who were involved in trade on the seas. These are sailors. And when the pirates came in and, and seized all of the coastal cities, they not only took the possessions, but sometimes the pirates would actually seize the people and sell them on the Roman trade markets. One of the ways that the pirates were able to make their greatest profit is by human cargoes, slaves that they were selling. Hmm. So these people retreated into the interior. And basically what they were saying with these reliefs is that you've moved us out of the coastal areas. We're now ready to defend ourselves. Hmm. Okay. And we have the upper hand because we have the higher, uh, the heights uh, we know the territory. We know where we can hide. We know where we can ambush you and attack you. 
And what's also interesting about these is many of them are on uh, conspicuous places on the mountainside so that anybody traveling from the coast up Satan's Valley would be able to see these from a distance. And it's kind of a, a shot across the bow. It's a warning yeah. that if you come up here for evil purposes, uh, you're in for a fight. Yeah. Hmm. We need to put some relief stuff at the house. And stand <laughs> That's why we have three teenage boys. Okay. Boys. So now we're, now we're heading to the, you found the, you discovered what is known as the oldest Jewish synagogue. <laughs> so tell us about that. That was one of the coolest moments when we climbed through all that brush they need to clean out some of this stuff. So <laughs> this is what I said to Scott. I'm like, I can't understand why there's not a gondola and a and a ticket booth and a souvenir shop near all of these things. Like, why are they not capitalizing on these places, Mark? That may happen someday in the future, but right now, um, that's not the case. It is, as Scott could tell you, this is a wilderness out there. Oh, yeah. There's a reason why it's called Rough Cilicia. Yeah. You know, Cilicia was divided into two different sections. One of them is called Smooth Cilicia, and that's where you have coastal flatlands. It's not as rugged as Rough Cilicia. Well, no, I just wondered why they didn't, like, turn it into some touristy thing. Oh, he might be oh. getting else, but yeah, I mean. Well, I think you're trying to help the, you're trying to help the Turkish government, like, get more invested in this. Maybe one day. Yeah, I, I think part of the reason why it hasn't been developed very well is simply because it's hard to get there. Mm, and yeah. to uh, to make highways or roads that are easier to get into the interior, it's going to cost a lot of money uh, to then, once you get into the interior, to actually get access to the site itself. Once we parked our car, how many times, Scott, did we have to get out of the car and then hike and make our way through brush? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's just that it, uh, it's going to be costly yeah. to develop those sites. How did you originally find the oldest synagogue? It's 200 BC, you think? It's first or second century BC. Yeah. So, you know, somewhere in that range. Uh, the first time I visited that area, I knew that there were ancient sites, ancient villages and towns. But I didn't know specifically where because the roads are worse than today. You know, most of the roads that we traveled on today had at least a little bit of pavement. We didn't yeah. get onto too many dirt roads. But back in 2007, when I first visited, a lot of these were dirt roads that just weave in and out all over the place. And uh, so as I, as I was looking around, a, uh, a person on a motorcycle drove up to one of the sites. He saw me off onto the distance. And he got off of his motorcycle and started walking over towards me. And I thought, well, he's going to tell me that I'm not permitted to do what I'm doing, that I have to get out of here. It happened to be a fellow that uh, Scott knows very well, Davout. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's our friend that we met. Yeah. Oh, funny. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, he asked me my name and what I was doing. This is what commonly happens in Turkey when I'm traveling anywhere. You know, you meet local people. And they wonder, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. We don't see too many Americans around here. Uh -huh, yeah. And uh, so Davout began taking me around to several of these sites. And one of the sites is at Chate Oren, where the synagogue is located. Now, he dropped me off by the side of the road because he didn't want to get in there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame him. Yeah. And so from there, 
my objective was to get to the central ridge, which Scott got to, okay? And on the central ridge, there is a wonderfully built temple to Hermes. Uh, probably the bet I've never seen a temple to Hermes that's in better shape. It is terrific. And next to it, of course, you see a watchtower. You also see a fortification. That's what my objective was. And so as I make my way down to the bottom, there's a stream there. You cross over the stream and then you make the climb up. And it's not an easy climb because you've got the tangle of all the brush and everything else that we went through. And as I was making my way up, you begin to see some of the buildings, the construction on the Central Ridge. And as I looked over onto my left-hand side, that's when I saw the lintel of a structure. And it looked to me like there was a menorah right in the center of that. And it was clearly a menorah. Yeah. And I thought to myself at that time, I can't be the first person to have seen this. <laughs> so I took a bunch of photographs, continued my climb, went to the Hermes temple and took a lot of photographs. And then for probably the next uh, four years or so, I was doing research to see if anybody else had ever been there. I ended up publishing an article in uh, 2012 in the uh, Biblical Archaeology Review uh, on the discovery. So you can see it there. It's actually on my website. So if anybody wants to check it out, it's www.ancientbiblicalworld.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, the article's there. You can see a PDF. And is it is there a strong assumption that Paul probably came through and visited that synagogue? You know, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Paul spent seven to nine years in Cilicia. That's longer than any of the three missionary journeys that are reported in the Acts of the Apostles. Hmm. As a matter of fact, it's as long as any two of them combined. So what was Paul doing during those seven to nine years? Unfortunately, the Acts of the Apostles doesn't give us any detail, unfortunately. Uh, but Paul, when writing to the Galatians, tells us that he was in Cilicia during that time. Yeah. In other letters of Paul's, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about, 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that 14 years earlier, he received a revelation from God. Hmm. If you do the math, 14 years earlier is when Paul was in Cilicia during that period of time. Mm. And it's during this period of time that Paul was learning the gospel, learning theology, learning, well, who Jesus Christ was, mm -hmm. unraveling the Judaism in which he had been immersed for all of his life and coming to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ is alive mm. and he's Messiah. Yeah. And Paul just didn't sit on it and just didn't theologize. He went into this region and was doing ministry in synagogues. Hmm. Now, we know from Paul's pattern from the Acts of the Apostles, when he does missionary work, where does he go? He goes to villages and towns and cities with a Jewish presence, and he doesn't go to the agoras, mm -hmm. where most people would assemble together and hang out. Yeah. He goes to the synagogue. And so my theory, and this is what I'm writing with my second project that I'd mentioned a little bit earlier uh, in this production. Uh, my second project is to discover where are Jews? Can we find villages and towns with a Jewish presence? And if we find them, I believe, 
I think with a high degree of probability that Paul was there during that seven to nine year period of time, evangelizing, sharing the gospel with Jews in these communities. So on the, this might be a weird question, but on the menorah that was etched in the synagogue, was it, did it have seven or eight? Seven. Seven. Okay. Because it would have been seven branches. Yeah. And the menorah is crudely cut. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a couple of things that help us to date that menorah. Number one is later on in time, the menorah, the Jewish menorah became stylized. So it would have a, a tripod base mm-hmm. um, and it would be stylized, you know, just kind of a, a, a style that was repeated throughout the Hellenistic, not through the Hellenistic, but through the Byzantine period. This is not stylized. It's root, crudely cut and, and there's no tripod base. Okay. The other thing that helps us to date it is the construction of the building itself. Mm-hmm. And that's polygonal construction. Mm-hmm. which dates to the period of the Hellenistic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Hellenistic period. And in there, there was a, is it a sign of Zeus that was also next to it? So tell yes. us that mean that can mean as far oh. as God goes. Scott, that's, that's, it's getting pretty deep into it. <laughs> um, I, I right, it's amazing to hear this, to know that this was something that was going on. So on the right hand side of the menorah, the, now the menorah is centrally positioned on the lintel. Okay, so that's the primary object. But on the right-hand side of that, we have a uh, symbol of Zeus. That is the thunderbolt. Most Mm -hmm. of you remember, of course, Zeus is the god of Mount Olympus. He's the god of the sky. He's the guy who throws the thunderbolt. Mm -hmm. And he's commonly depicted with a thunderbolt, which has, well, it's a lightning bolt, essentially, with three prongs on the front and the back. And that's exactly what we see here on this menorah. Hmm. Now, the question to be asked is, why would a Jewish synagogue have a pagan symbol etched upon it? Mm-hmm. Now, the answer to that is that during the Hellenistic period, many of the Greeks, that is the non-Jewish people, were questioning the polytheistic Greek and uh, Roman gods. Uh, this is where philosophy came in. Philosophers were questioning traditions. And so some of these people believed that there was only one God, not many gods. And they believed that there was a God, uh, which in Greek is referred to as the uh, Theos Hupsistos. Translated simply means the highest God. But who's the highest God? That would be Zeus. Okay. They didn't believe that any of the other gods existed, but they did believe that there was a God. They called him Zeus. Hmm. Now, there's an interesting uh, book that was written during the Hellenistic period, that is the intertestamental period, about the second century BC. It's called The Letter of Aristeos, and it was written by a Jew. And this guy says that many of the Greeks believe in the same God as we do. They just give him a different name. Hmm. We call him Yahweh. They call him Zeus. And so what's happening here is uh, there's reconciliation. And this is, I think, perhaps even where Paul began to learn about reconciliation, not only theologically, but how that's played out in common life. Mm -hmm. Because you have Jewish people who are living in Chateauren. You also have Gentile people living in Chateauren. And what they're doing is they're forming a common center for worship of the one God. Hmm. 
Hmm. Now, there's also an inscription that was found at Chateauret, which we don't have enough time to get into right now, but it reinforces what I've just been describing. Hmm. Two people who have come together, who are laying aside their theological differences. No doubt they had different views of who this highest God would be, mm-hmm. but they have a common bond. Hmm. Now, incidentally, I'll leave you with one more thought. Um, the New Testament refers to these people not as devotees of the highest God, but rather there's another term that they use. They're called God-fearers. God-fearers are non-Jewish people who believe in only one God. And we read about those God-fearers many times in the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a lot to take that's in. It's so take That's in. so cool. Your brain holds a lot of information. <laughs> So there's another thing I learned on the trip, and that's Thecla. Can you give it like a brief biography of Thecla, which oh, I had never heard, heard of? So much about Thecla. Oh yeah, I was like, what is sending me all this information? I was like, this is crazy. And I went and watched a few little videos on it that I could find just to see, like, what in the world? And I'm like, yeah, actually, Mark did, didn't make this up. It's actually all out there, <laughs> or a lot of information out there. <laughs> yeah, very briefly, uh, there's a second century document called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Thecla, T-H-E-C-L-A, was written in the middle of the second century. And it describes Paul when he came to the city of Iconium on his first missionary journey, preached the gospel as we read about in the Acts of the Apostles. But realize also the Acts of the Apostles doesn't tell us everything. Okay? Yeah. This is a woman who was engaged to a nobleman. Okay? And she listened from her bedroom window to Paul preaching and sharing the gospel. She believed. And as a consequence of her becoming a Christian, she dissolved her engagement to the nobleman, which is a huge embarrassment to the nobleman, mm-hmm. and also something that her mother did not like. Because she was a peasant woman, evidently a very attractive peasant woman. And this is a way that you can step up in society. You know, if you are attractive and if you marry your daughter to a nobleman, then that raises your status Mm. in terms of society. It may also help you out a great deal in terms of the economics. And so she's opposed by the nobleman and persecuted by the nobleman and by her mother. So as a consequence, she flees, she travels with Paul and uh, ends up um, in the modern city of what is called Salifke. Back in the day, it was called Seleucia ad Calicodnum. Calicodnum was the river that ends up um, in the Mediterranean there. And we have uh, a Marturian there. So early church tradition is that Thecla spent her last days there. And there are four Byzantine churches at that site. Not one, but four of them. Yeah. Uh, Thecla actually was probably the most prominent woman in early Christianity, even superseding Mary, mm. which is saying a lot. Yeah. And so it became a place of pilgrimage. And we ourselves, our group, made that pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's an interesting story. Now, as you read through the Acts of Paul and Thecla, uh, the narrative has also been mythologized. There's a lot yeah. of crazy things that go on there that probably didn't Mm -hmm. but the core of the story is probably true it's been embellished and expanded but uh, there's ample evidence of Thecla testimony of Thecla 
across Turkey and not just in Turkey, but throughout the Mediterranean world. Hmm. And that's called multiple attestation. There are so many traditions that talk about Thecla that we have to assume that she really was a convert of Paul's. That's hmm. so interesting. Yeah, just many sources. Okay, so I want to finish by talking about your next your next book you're working on <laughs> and the theory that Paul grew up as a slave. Again, this kind of, when you first mentioned it, I'm like, what is this? But then as you read the scriptures, you go, okay, maybe this is why he talked about the slave-master relationship and all that so much. So tell us your theory about Paul being a slave and how it's going with that book getting published. Okay, um, <laughs> Jerome, an early church father, many of your listeners will be familiar with Jerome, tells us a tradition, and he mentions it in two different places. He claims that Paul's parents came from Gishala, which I actually visited on my trip earlier before I met up with you folks, um, and that uh, once the city was sacked, they were moved. Okay, now, Jerome doesn't tell us specifically that they were sold off onto the slave markets, but we know what the Romans did. When the Romans took over Palestine, the Jews didn't like it. And many of the cities in Palestine, particularly in Galilee, rose up against the Romans. What the Romans then did is they came in and they sacked those cities. And what they would do is they would kill off the men who were the combatants. The non-combatants, meaning the women and the children, were commonly then sold off onto the Roman slave markets. So here we go back to that issue of slavery once again. Um, evidently, Paul's family was purchased by a Roman citizen in Tarsus. And so that's why Paul lived in Tarsus during his early years. At some point, he gained his freedom. That's called manumission. Typically, a slave would be a slave for approximately 20 years, unlike today. Today, we think of slavery as being kind of a terminal existence was not the case back in those days. If you served your master faithfully for 20 years, you would be released, okay? And that's why Paul then uh, was able to gain freedom and he migrated, made his way to Jerusalem. Now, another interesting feature is, you ask the question, how does Paul get Roman citizenship? We know that Paul was a Roman citizen. He's Jewish. He wasn't born a Roman citizen, okay? Roman citizenship would be conferred upon a slave if that slave was owned by a Roman master. And if the Roman master saw that the slave was integrated into the Roman system. Many people who were thrown into Roman slavery, of course, would initially be very much against Rome, right? Nobody wants to be a slave. But Paul could see and his family could see that, hey, you know, the Romans are really, they're fair far as fair goes back in those days. Mm -hmm. And so what probably happened is that Paul, once he was released, along with his family, they were given Roman citizenship. And that's probably also why Paul was given a Roman name. You folks know that Paul had a Jewish name, mm -hmm. Saul, you know, hearkening all the way back to the days of, you know, Saul, the King Saul. But he also had a Roman name, Paul, Paulus. And uh, so it, it really fits together. Yeah. Uh, when we first see Paul in the Acts of the Apostles, he's associated with the synagogue of the freedmen. What are freedmen? Freedmen are Jews who 
were formerly slaves, but had been manumitted, had been freed. They themselves made their way back to uh, Jerusalem, and they congregated together in a synagogue. It's also stated, incidentally, when it, Acts chapter 6 talks about the synagogue of the freedmen, it specifically mentions that there are men from Cilicia. Well, Paul comes from Cilicia. Hmm. It's a subtle way for Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, to insinuate that Paul was a former slave. Wow. Hmm. What's interesting about this is that Paul never states that he's a slave. Luke never states that he's a slave. And I think for probably strategic reasons, okay, it's going to get you nowhere. You know, it would be an impediment to his ministry because slaves are commonly thought to be occupying the lowest echelons of society. Hmm. And so they just don't mention it. I'll mention it, yeah. Hmm. But it's definitely changed just thinking about that possibility has changed how I read it. Like the things when he's talking about slaves and masters, it makes it seem so much more personal to him when he's talking about those things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it just brings a depth to what he's saying in yeah. the scripture. So, mm -hmm. okay, Mark, I'm telling you, I'm rested up now. I'm ready to go again. Where are you so going next? I well, go back to Turkey. <laughs> so, I'll say this much yesterday. I met with the uh, the filmmakers who produced The Last Apostle. Yeah. Had so many emails from folks who are interested in The Last Apostle. And um, a lot of the people also have gone on trips because they wanted to travel with me. Yeah. Well, we're doing fundraising, okay, for another film. And this one oh, here awesome. is going to be dealing with some of the, uh, the lost antiquities mm -hmm. of Turkey and how the antiquities wow. are endangered by... Well, sometimes uh, treasure hunters, sometimes natural disasters like what we saw in Antakya, mm -hmm. and sometimes by modern developments like dams that are being constructed that are now flooding some of the ancient sites. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be making another film in the years to come. Wow. That's awesome. Very cool. <laughs> Just give me a call when you're heading back to back to turkey and i'll join you so. <laughs> or well, i would go to egypt or israel with them yeah. easily <laughs> next year actually i had students uh tell me that they want to go to israel egypt too so yeah there you go yeah. israel <laughs> that's not quite as treacherous of a hiking situation right <laughs> no egypt is pretty flat yeah except we started this trip going to mount sinai we climbed mount sinai oh wow. that's <laughs> but okay. if we don't go to Mount Sinai, you don't have to worry about it. Okay, you might have to sign us up because Israel is your, you're that's, ready to go that's there. That's definitely so. my, one of my places I want to go to. But please take me to Egypt and take me to Israel. I would love to do that. <laughs> you're welcome on any of the trips. Keep, keep us awesome. posted on all of your happenings. We love following you. I'm glad for social media, we get to see what you're up to these days. It's so good to see you again. It makes me want to get out on the trails again with you. So let's do it again soon. Okay. Yes. I love to do it. Rebecca, in all of this, we talked about what it's meant to me. Mm -hmm. Like going to Turkey has really changed the way I read scripture and think about it. So and at the very end of talking to Mark, we talked about going to the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. So for you, what is so special about the chance to go to the Holy Land? Yeah, well, I think that already now I do study the Old Testament a lot and I pull up maps all the time, even just on my phone, like pulling up the actual lo current location. Like you can just type in Israel and go straight there and you can zoom out and you can see the Red Sea and you can see you know, just like he was talking about the end, like Mount Sinai, you can kind of see where all these pieces and of this giant puzzle fit together. That's actually a, 
the little piece of it in the middle that kind of where it all started. And so I don't know, I feel like it would just be even make it even more complete. I feel like I'm just missing that tangible factor to be on the ground where it happens. Yes, to be on the ground where it happened. I would love to To be in the room where it happened, like Hamilton. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Kind (laughs) of. Not really. (laughs) Well, and to tell you how much Rebecca is into the Old Testament, every Sunday now, she is teaching our kids through Zoom meetings. She's teaching them the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So when I sent the Zoom link out today, I called it Rebecca's Rabbinical School. Mm -hmm. So that's how intense she is about the Old Testament. So yeah, I think this would really be something that we need to do. Yeah. And maybe we maybe we can talk Mark into this. I bet we can. I bet you we can. Yes. Let's yeah. see if we can. Yep. All right. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this recap. Hardy party of five and a half over and out. We'll see you next time. Shalom. Shalom, shalom. <laughs>